Good morning. If you got a Bible, go ahead, open it up to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Today we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 15. 2 Corinthians 8, 1 through 15. When you're there, please read with me what the Apostle Paul says. He says, And now, brothers and sisters, We want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. In the midst of a very severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. For I testify that they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability, entirely on their own. They urgently pleaded with us, for the privilege of sharing in this service to the Lord's people. And they exceeded our expectations. They gave themselves first of all to the Lord, and then by the will of God also to us. So we urged Titus, just as he had earlier made a beginning, to bring also to completion this act of grace on your part. But since you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in complete earnestness, and in the love that we've enkindled in you, see that you also excel in this grace of giving. I'm not commanding you, but I want to test the sincerity of your love by comparing it with the earnestness of others. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. And here is my judgment about what's best for you in this matter. Last year, you were the first not only to give, but also to have the desire to do so. Now finish the work, so that your eager willingness to do it may be matched by your completion of it according to your means. For if the willingness is there, the gift is acceptable to what one has, not according to what one does not have. Our desire is not that others might be relieved while you're hard-pressed, but that there might be equality. At the present time, your plenty will supply what they need, so that in turn, their plenty will supply what you need. The goal is equality as it's written. The one who's gathered much did not have too much, and the one who gathered little did not have too little. Church, please read with me this prayer that you see on your screen right now. Lord, open our hearts and minds by the power of your Holy Spirit, that, that as the scriptures are read and your word is proclaimed, we may hear with joy what you have to say to us today. Amen. So before Paul was sent by the churches in Jerusalem to go and start new churches, uh, north of them in places like Corinth and Macedonia, they asked something very important of him. They asked Paul, the apostle, that while he was out starting all these other churches, that he would remember the poor Christians in Jerusalem and he'd help them. You see, uh, a little bit before this, a famine had come through the land uh, in Jerusalem, in Palestine there, and had left the Christians in Jerusalem uh, economically disadvantaged, poor, marginalized, hungry. And so Paul had this habit of when he would start a new church, 
he would set up with them this weekly offering. This wasn't tithing. Uh, This was their own free giving above and beyond that, that he would eventually then come back and collect and bring with him to these, uh, help these Christians in Jerusalem. This collection had incredible personal, but also theological significance to Paul. So much so that he wouldn't go and fulfill his lifelong dream at that time, which was taking the gospel to Spain, starting new churches there. He wouldn't do that until this collection was done. It's so important to him that uh, one prominent scholar, uh, commentator on the book of 2 Corinthians thinks it's why Paul actually wrote this book even in the first place. You see, a year ago, we read in verse 10, the Corinthians made a pledge to this offering that they had stopped giving toward. And Paul knows uh, that after he writes this letter to them, he's going to go and see the Corinthian church for the last time, meaning this is his last chance to get their financial support and help for the poor, starving Christians in Jerusalem. A lot riding on it. And yet, despite how important this collection was to Paul, his biggest concern in this passage today isn't the fund itself, but it's actually the Corinthians. You see, Paul doesn't want them to give just for the sake of giving, because Paul knows this. Paul knows it is possible for you and me to be technically generous without being truly generous. Paul knows that it's possible for us to outwardly give money, lots of money, to appear to people just kind of looking in to be very generous when on the fact, inwardly, we're full of self-righteousness, we're proud, we're manipulative, we attach strings to everything we give to people. Meaning the, the Corinthians, he knows they could fulfill this pledge tomorrow and be worse off spiritually than if they hadn't given a dime to it. Uh, back in 2010, Bill Gates and Warren Buffett started something called the Giving Pledge. Now, to be a member of the Giving Pledge, there's uh, two requirements you have to meet. Uh, so first, you have to be a billionaire, minimum. Second, you have to agree to give away in this life or in your will 50%, half of all your wealth to any sort of charities that you want to. And since then, for the last 10 years now, it's grown to 200 people, 200 people who are committed to leveraging their financial resources for the common good. And now you might hear that and think, well, who cares how much money Bill Gates gives away. He's always going to have more than I do. And that's probably true. But let's be a little fair on them for a second here. It doesn't matter how much money you have. If you were to give away half of it, I mean, that would change the way you live. There would be some significant changes in your lifestyle because of it. It would be an incredible act of giving. And yet Paul knows that it's possible for you to give away not just half of your money, you could give away all of your money and be spiritually worse off than if you never had done anything. Because as the Apostle Paul tells us, as the Bible shows all throughout, true generosity isn't tied to a dollar amount, isn't tied to a giving percentage. It's based on the heart of the giver. And it's the heart, that motivation for true generosity that Paul 
is trying to persuade us of this morning. Showing us two things. Showing us uh, the power for true generosity, and then showing us the person of true generosity. So let's look at the first point there. The power for true generosity. Paul starts by showing what creates true, heart-level, lasting generosity in the Corinthian church, in me and you and anybody. The power for true generosity that Paul, Paul tells us in verse 1 is this. Grace. It's God's undeserved, unconditional, inexhaustible love to guilty sinners like you and me who could never earn it for a second, but now through Jesus Christ have it for eternity. It's the reality that because of what, what God has done for us, not because of what we've done. In fact, in defiance of the fact that what we've done, you in Jesus Christ are now more secure in the love of God than you ever dreamed possible. But here's the thing. The churches in Macedonia already knew this. This isn't new information for them. They had been churches for years. Right? The gospel isn't something they're just hearing for the first time. They had, they had already believed this. So what's happening? What is Paul talking about here? They had a fresh encounter with God's grace. They had what uh, Jonathan Edwards, who's a pastor in the kind of mid-1700s, describes as an extraordinary experience of the ordinary work of God's Holy Spirit. Where we see our sin in deeper, more honest, uglier ways than we have before, where we see God's holiness in more perfect and beautiful ways than we had ever realized before, and where we see the cross, the death of his son for us in a more personal and loving way than we ever thought possible. And it's this fresh encounter with God's grace that reoriented everything in the lives of these churches in Macedonia. It became the power in them to produce this radical generosity that they then gave to the poor and the starving Christians in Jerusalem. And Paul, after that, shows us what it looks like when God's grace, the power for true generosity is at work in someone. Shows us four things Four evidences of this power at work in the generosity of the Macedonian churches. Four things. First, he shows us through their example that generosity is oftentimes inconvenient. There's two words in verse 2 uh, that potentially, potentially would have given the Macedonians an out for giving towards this fund that none of us would have blamed them for. Severe and extreme. Paul says they gave despite severe trial. They were experiencing, as, as we read in last week's passage, intense persecution that led to this extreme poverty. Literally, you, you, you could just most woodenly translate it down to the depth poverty, rock bottom poverty. They had nothing. Point being then that when Paul asked them to, to freely give to this offering above and beyond, they're tied to their local churches, just free offering their own, their own desire. 
None of us, if we were there, would have blamed them in the circumstances they were in if they said, you know what, we'd love to, but now is just not really a good time for us. It's not really convenient. But they gave. And here's why. They understood that our money really isn't our money. It's God's. I mean, this is part of what Paul's doing in in verse 15, at the very end, when, when he compares our money to manna that God gave the Israelites every morning. Meaning that manna, money, they're both gifts from God. And now here's uh, the opposite approach. When we don't see our money as a gift from God, when we think, no, this is my money, uh, to do with it what I want, when I want, how I want, here's the opposite mentality. We're robbing God. That's what he tells his people in Malachi 3. When they stopped giving both their tithes and just the general offerings on top of that, because it it wasn't convenient for them anymore. God says to them in Malachi 3, why are you robbing me? Your money is actually mine. I gave it to you as a gift to steward. Yes, in part for your flourishing but also for the flourishing of all the other people around you. And so even though the Macedonians weren't in a place where it was convenient to give, they still did because they had experienced God's grace so much that they saw what a gift, even the little that they had was. So that's first. Second, we see the true power for generosity at work in them and that their generosity was costly. But look, at, look in verse 3. Uh, Paul says, for I testify that they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability. What he's saying there is that there was a sacrifice to their generosity. In other words, this wasn't just skimming off the top. They gave, implication being, until probably something in their lifestyle had to change because of it. There were certain things that they could do before they had to give up because of the amount that they were giving. It's kind of like when Jesus was at the temple once in the Gospels and he was watching people give uh, offerings there. And all of these uh, very wealthy people came in and they gave these gifts in front of everyone that were very large amounts of money. And then this widow comes in, poor widow, and she drops two coins into the plate. And Jesus tells his disciples that this woman gave more than anybody else. And they say, how is that possible? Did, did you not see these incredibly large gifts that all these other people gave? And he said, yeah, but here's the thing. These people who gave these large gifts, yes, but they're so wealthy, it didn't cost them anything. It might look impressive to us, but for them, it was just skimming off the top. Nothing in their life had to change because of it. There was no cost to their generosity. But this poor widow, who gave a a fraction? She gave a crumb in comparison to what they gave. She gave more than all of them combined because she gave everything she had. It cost her what she gave. Now, here's the thing. God is is not at all against people being wealthy. And if, if you think that, look through the Bible. Some of the most godly people in the Bible are some of the wealthiest people in it. Now, The point is the Macedonian churches 
had this fresh encounter with God's grace, so much that they, they understood in new ways the cost of his generosity. That Jesus Christ on the cross, he wasn't just skimming off the top. No, sent by the love of his Father, he offered up everything for you. So third then, we can see the true power for generosity at work in these Macedonian Christians and that their giving had joy to it. You know, Paul in verse 2, he contrasts the Macedonians' uh, severe trials, extreme poverty, with their overflowing joy in getting to give. Joy is a word that actually, if you read through the New Testament, it's almost entirely used to describe people who have experienced the gospel. It's what the angels tell the shepherds at Christ's birth. Don't be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all people. Meaning that their generosity, it was costly. Yeah, but it wasn't a burden to them. They had a fresh encounter with God's generosity and it produced in them this incredible joy because they saw the generosity of God who had incredible joy in giving them the gift of his son. The God whose angels erupt in joy in heaven every time a lost person is found by Christ. And so they gave then too from a place of joy. And fourth, we can see the true power for generosity at work in them and that their giving was voluntary. Paul says in verse three again, for I testify they gave as much as they were able, even beyond their ability, entirely on their own. Their gift was voluntary. They, they didn't have to do it. They wanted to do it. And it's these evidences of God's grace, the power for true generosity, that Paul shows these Corinthian uh, churches and then makes this call for them to put that same power at work. He says in verse 7, But since you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in complete earnestness, and in the love that we've enkindled in you, see that you also excel in this grace of giving. And now at first glance, it um, might sound like Paul is being maybe a little sarcastic here, but I don't think that actually makes sense with the context of this passage at all. Uh, no, Paul is doing this. He is not so subtly, pointing to the example of the Macedonians' generosity and in effect telling these Corinthian Christians, I know you've experienced the same grace of God they did. I can see it in your faith, in your speech, in your knowledge, in your love. Why not show it in your generosity like they did too? But he avoids playing the comparison game here. He, he doesn't basically say to them, all right, this is what you got to do. You got to keep up with the Joneses spiritually. You've got to be as generous, if not more generous than the Macedonians. No, that's, that's the opposite of living by grace. That's the opposite of what Paul's trying to achieve here. No, he knows that if they give for any other reason, here's what it'll produce in them. Either self-righteousness or self-condemnation, either of which, if that's the motivation for your generosity, do it for long enough, it'll eat you alive. He says, since you've experienced the same generosity of God they have, show it in the grace of giving. And when he says grace here, he's not talking about like he did earlier, what God's done for us in Jesus Christ. No, now here in verses six and seven, he's talking about what God produces 
in us through Jesus Christ, meaning give because a generous God is visibly remaking you into more generous people. All right, so if that's God's grace, if it's God's grace that's the power for true generosity, where do we find it then? And we see that when we look second at the person of true generosity that Paul leads us to. In verse 9, Paul brings us face to face with the person of true generosity in Jesus Christ. He says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. Paul starts this whole verse off here before the world even began. He says, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that he was rich. What he's talking about here is, is what theologians call the pre-existence of Jesus. That before coming to earth, Jesus Christ was one, equal with God the Father. No beginning, no end, full in and of himself, containing every last ounce of the full beauty and glory of God. Spiritually speaking, Jesus was unthinkably rich. Yet, Paul says, he became poor. He didn't grasp, Paul is saying, onto his place of privilege with God. No, he gave up the glory he had with the Father. The eternal God, Jesus Christ, who made everything that you can see, became a man left a place of love and security, entered into a world of pain and weakness. But as costly as that was, it was just the beginning. Jesus' poverty started in becoming a man, but ends, culminates, climaxes in being killed by men. On the cross, as Jesus is crucified, he gave up everything. He gave up his life, his honor, his glory, his power, and most of all, any sense that he had of the love of God, the most valuable thing in the universe, Jesus on the cross gave it all up, completely emptying himself, becoming physically, spiritually, existentially bankrupt. Why would he do that? Paul tells us from the start of the verse, for your sake. You see, there's an implication that Paul's making in this verse that we got to catch. Paul's saying, in effect, that, that Jesus traded places with us. That while he was rich, he became poor. So that we, who are what? Poor. Might become rich. Implied in what Paul is saying here is that Jesus became poor to trade places with us who are spiritually poor, who from the day we come into this world start off with a negative spiritual existential balance, a debt that on our own we can never repay. And that's different, if I'm being honest, than the way that I generally like to look at myself. I, would, I wouldn't 
like to say that I'm spiritually poor. Instead, I'd like to maybe modestly consider myself as spiritually middle class. I'm realistic about myself. You know, I'm, I know I'm not perfect, but I'd like to think I could probably do just enough good things at the end of the day to balance out my account with God. When the way the Bible describes it is that actually what makes us spiritually bankrupt isn't just the sinful things we do. That's a lot of times the way we think about it. And yes, but even more than that, it's also the good things that we do to try to balance out our account with God, to try to get us back into the black with him. The Bible says when we do it that way, it only adds to our spiritual poverty. And now maybe you're sitting in your living room, your bedroom, your bathroom, no judgment there, uh, thinking, you know what? wait a second, I don't think that just because I don't live up to some arbitrary standard like the Bible that that I never agreed to in the first place, that I need to consider myself morally, spiritually, existentially poor. Uh, Francis Schaeffer, he was a pastor in America, uh, died back in the 80s. He used to say this, well, imagine for a second that there is a device on you, that your whole life recorded every time you judge someone, whether, whether you said it or whether you thought it. And at the end of your life, that device is brought out and everything you've ever said is played in front of you. And you're now judged on the standards that you set for other people. Pass, fail. How you doing? I'm not doing good. Will you confess with me that you're more of a walking contradiction than you'd like to admit? That even the good things you do so many times are so full of mixed motives that oftentimes they're, they're less about the other person and really more about you. If you can confess that, Paul is saying, here's what we get. Jesus Christ takes on the depths of your spiritual poverty and makes you rich. So that you would be able to say, not because of what I've done, not because I've earned it. I never could earn it in the first place. No, but because Jesus earned it for me, there is now no condemnation for me. I am completely known and accepted by my Father who loves me. I have the presence of his Holy Spirit in me, assuring me of this, and no one or nothing can ever take this gift away from me. I mean, do you, have, have, you, ever, have you ever thought about the fact that Jesus Christ has made us more rich in the love of God than we would ever even know what to do with? We've got more money in our spiritual bank account than we could spend in a lifetime. And Paul is telling the Corinthians, when you see this, when you see Jesus Christ, that though he was unthinkably rich on the cross, taking your spiritual bankruptcy to make you rich in him. It radically changes you deep down at the core of who you are and makes you generous from the heart. And now Paul, you know, being an apostle, he could stop it here. He could have just dropped the mic, 
uh, say, you know what, that kind of settles it. I feel like there's nothing else that we need to say here, right, guys? But he doesn't. No, Paul, very thoughtfully, I think, speaks after what has been very probably inspiring, moving for us, speaks to two potential objections uh, that the Corinthians might have had while they're reading all this, uh, two potential objections that maybe you have in all of this. First, Paul anticipates this pushback. Okay, Paul, so if Jesus did that much for me, if he didn't just tie this blood, if he gave all of it, if the Macedonians who, who were poor still managed a way to give beyond what they had the ability to, are you saying that that's what I need to do? That I need to just take this oath of poverty? I need to give more than I maybe wisely should? And he says, no, not at all. Now in verse 12, he says, for if the willingness is there, the gift is acceptable according to what one has, not according to what one does not have. In other words, Paul points them back here, brings them back to the whole motivation that he's been talking about this whole time for true generosity, grace, not comparison with what other people gave, not guilt, looking at what Christ gave. No, Paul says it's the willingness, it's the motivation that matters. Meaning for for you and me today, there's freedom in how we want to be generous. All right, second, Paul anticipates this pushback. Okay, but is it fair then that we should give to the point that we suffer while somebody else flourishes from it? And this is what Paul says in verse 13. Our desire is not that others might be relieved while you are hard-pressed, but that there might be equality. At the present time, your plenty, yes, will supply what they need, so that in turn, their plenty will supply what you need. The goal is equality. As it's written, and quoting from Exodus 16, the one who has gathered much didn't have uh, too much, and the one who gathered little didn't have too little. Paul says here, the point of generosity as Christians to each other is equality. He's not talking about He's not Karl Marx here. He's not talking about communist uh, equality. Everyone literally owns the same amount of everything. No, he's talking about equality of basic needs. And you can see in that last verse that he quotes there, he's, he's quoting in verse 15 from Exodus 16. When God's people are wandering through the desert and every morning God would send them manna, food that would appear on the ground for them in the morning that they were to collect just enough for each day. And God warned them, don't take more than you need. He says, if you do, it'll rot, it'll sour, it'll stink. You won't be able to use it. Because if someone took more than they they needed, then that meant somebody else wouldn't get what they needed. The point Paul's making is this. In God's people, Some are going to have more than others. But no one should go without their needs being met. And on the other hand, no one should hoard to themselves incredible amounts of wealth while, while other people around them, other Christians in their community around them, are starving and in need and not having their needs being met. 
But here's what's really interesting. Did you see how Paul tells them this? Paul tells a church of Greek Christians, Gentiles, not Jews, people who in the Old Testament were always the outsiders looking in on God's people. We're always on the outside of God's covenant looking in. We're always on the outside of God's promises wanting to get in on it. He tells them essentially this. Guys, you know this. It's just like God's people have always been. We're generous with each other. How can Paul, how can Paul tell a church of Gentile Christians this? How can he tell them, connecting them back to the Exodus people uh, in Exodus 16, how can he tell them, guys, it's like we've always, it's like God's people have always been. Just be generous with each other. Well, here's how. Because as Paul says in Galatians 6, that we are in a new age now where there is a new people of God. That through Jesus Christ, people from every class, every race, every nation, Jew, Gentile, people in Jerusalem, Corinth, Macedonia, people from Brazil, India, America, by the grace of God, he's welcomed us all into his family. He's included us all into his promises. He's given us all a seat at the table through the incredible generosity of Christ on the cross. A generosity that like the Macedonians was, for Christ was inconvenient, costly, joyful, and voluntary. And Paul says, because of that, you're a part of his people now. And we get to show the same generosity to each other as the God who's been abundantly generous to us. Thanks be to Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you sent your Son, who rich became poor, that we who were poor would become rich, unthinkably rich, and your promises and love to us compel us by your grace to show that same generosity you've shown us to each other in this time of need. Amen.